Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is our deputy editor, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Our newly promoted senior journalist, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And our journalist, Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Michelle Rowland, the Shadow Minister for Communications, about why all content isn't equal. Public interest journalism isn't cat videos. Forcing the digital players to pay publishers. It remains to be seen when the date will come, when that money will flow. And in the interim, um, what happens to all these other publications? And which TV show makes her feel guilty? It has set a standard so high um, for the rest of us. You know, Louie and Chili have a lot to answer for. (laughs) But first, the week's topics. Job losses and programming cuts at the ABC. Big moves in the media agency landscape. Why do agency executives use so much marketing doublespeak? And TikTok gets its first Aussie agency. Is it spin or real? Let's start with a bad week for the ABC. We've known this was coming for a while, but it's still been a shock for many. Viv, what are the key cuts? So there's going to be up to 250 fewer jobs at the ABC, so up to 250 people will lose their jobs. They've also removed the 7.45am radio bulletin, which sounds oddly specific and not like it would be a huge cost-saving measure, but it's the bulletin on radio that's introduced by the ABC's famous Majestic Fanfare Music. It's said that a lot of people still have it as appointment listening And it's then followed by a 30-minute news program called AM. So it was sort of like a 45-minute block of really serious in-depth news. By cutting it, they obviously need less resources in terms of journalists and researchers and whatnot, and it really shifts their radio programming and their radio offering. And then the other big one, I guess, is ABC Life, which is their relatively new, younger-skewing lifestyle-type platform, is going to be... They say rebranded as ABC Local, but it's so much more than a rebrand. ABC Life essentially is not going to exist anymore. They're saying that under the banner of ABC Local, they'll still be able to tell people's stories and access that diverse audience and that diverse storytelling, but making it more hyper-local. But I do think it's a move away from that strategy that they were trying to execute with ABC Life. Well, ABC Life is maybe a good place to zoom in because that felt like one of the points of most conflict with the commercial media because it it launched fairly late and it seemed to really be quite, I know it's a lazy term, but quite clickbaity, quite populist, quite listy. Um, The sort of, you know, the sort of offerings that um, were available in other places. And I know that there were, you know, you know, many defensive comments from ABC journalists over the years saying, no, there was there was actually more to it than that, and here are some examples. But it, it always felt like ABC Life was the one where, in recent years, the ABC had most moved its tanks onto the commercial lawns. 
I'm going to call you out on that, Tim. Have you actually spent a lot of time on ABC Life or have you read a lot of think pieces about ABC Life? Well, that's a very good question because I spent some time in in the early days, found it a massive patronising turn-off and never came back, which is um, a consumer behaviour, but professionally I should have done because I I feel like I'm about to be schooled. (laughs) No, I do do just think it... uh, it's interesting how much the commercial media really rallied against ABC Life. You know, it's not often that you see a similar thought thread running throughout the likes of The Guardian and The Daily Telegraph, but both pe- both publications and indeed many other publications really rallied against it, whether it was as the death of the ABC or the ABC really going outside its charter or the ABC stepping on their toes. You know, the the Daily Telegraph had a headline, ABC life means ABC death, and The Guardian reported it as ABC in turmoil. It's pretty strong words from pretty politically opposed publications. And what I would say is the commercial media ran an incredibly effective campaign against ABC life. And if they could throw those resources into running an effective campaign against Facebook and, and the digital platforms, perhaps they'd find themselves in a little bit less trouble. I just, it was astounding how much people hated ABC Life in the media and how much. And this is a good philosophical debate. And um, Hannah and Britt, I might bring you in on this as well. What is the ABC for? Because I think the commercial players will paint it as a market failure organisation. If something can't be provided by the private sector, the ABC should be there to provide essential services. Whereas I think the ABC has always thought of itself as more than that. Um, what should it be? Where are the taxpayers' dollars best spent? I'll jump in here, Tim. I suppose I would say to your earlier point that I don't think the stuff ABC Life is doing is stuff that commercial outlets have done well at all. I mean, I think one of its best selling points is how diverse the team itself has been, but also how diverse the content that they've produced has been. And there's been, you know, plenty of Twitter threads over the past couple of days pointing out really great pieces that they've run. But things that kind of stood out to me were, I think it was last week, they ran a piece on, you know, what not to say to friends or family who are experiencing infertility issues. They've done stuff about, you know, how people who are on welfare, you know, get through being unemployed, stuff about, you know, um, a man who deals with kids experiencing racism all the time, the sorts of questions that they're asking him, stuff about, you know, um, recovering from depression and things that people have learnt, stuff about going off alcohol for a year. And I think that's the stuff that young people care about. It is younger skewing. And that's the stuff I don't think that you're going to get if you go to, you know, a News Corp or a Nine or even a Guardian, really. The Guardian's lifestyle product is very different, I think. So are you arguing then that the job of the ABC is to be that, just fill the gap where the commercial market doesn't come Not even fill a gap. I mean, I think that that underestimates or downplays its role. I mean, if you think about bushfire coverage or COVID coverage, yes, you know, for regional areas, particularly in the context of the bushfires, there are gaps there. But they're also, you know, doing just as good of work across COVID as commercial outlets are doing and commercial outlets have obviously been first and foremost covering that. 
I think the tagline that's, you know, often used is our ABC. And I don't think that it has to be kind of any one thing. And uh, the part that always gets me as well about the way we talk about lifestyle content is I think it's very often dismissed and it's very interesting that lifestyle content is often written for or targets women in particular. And I don't think that lifestyle content is any less important or valued or valuable, I should say, um, than hard news products are. So I think that it's an incredible shame. It sounds like ABC Local is definitely going to have a news focus rather than a lifestyle focus. And I think given what ABC Life has done, I think it's really come into its own over the past six months or so. And yeah, I, I will definitely miss it. I think if we just look at the basis of the ABC charter, the one that's usually trotted out the most is that the point of the ABC is to contribute to a sense of national identity and inform and entertain and reflect the cultural diversity of the Australian community, as well as, you know, all the points to it being able to provide comprehensive broadcasting coverage. I think what is quite often missed in the kind of commercial takedowns of the ABC is that there's nothing in there about filling a gap and there's nothing in there about, oh, it can't touch anything that commercial areas are already touching. I think the point of the ABC is that it's meant to be an entire product in and of itself. And that includes lifestyle content, especially as Brit mentioned, lifestyle content that isn't being covered elsewhere, but also if it does include lifestyle content that is being covered elsewhere, that doesn't make it any less important. And that doesn't make it, you know, like the ABC overstepping its boundaries and kind of crashing in on the commercial media offers. I think it just means it's kind of offering that full, well-rounded ABC that is what we need to contribute to our sense of national identity. And Hannah actually wrote a piece about ABC Life last year and spoke to one of the people behind it, Scott Spark, and and he addressed this idea of whether or not life fits with the ABC Charter. And he said, without the commercial pressures, we're able to take the approach which is most in line with the Charter and our editorial policies. When it comes to the Charter and how it really speaks to life, there are some key things that I would love to draw on. One of them is around reflecting Australia's cultural diversity innovating our content and providing independent media services. There's obviously a lot in the charter, but for me, those are the three that are steadfast and provide the guidelines for what we do and how we do it. So I think it all depends which part of the charter you you cherry pick to decide whether or not ABC Life fits with it. But I mean, there's no doubt that there are people who are pleased this week that it will no longer exist. Well, Viv, let's also go back to something you, you mentioned earlier, the the end of the 7.45am bulletin. Um, slightly cynical PR question, public relations question. Do you think it's possible that some of the plan for the announcement is focus on that, there'll be a bit of outrage, then maybe throw that back as a bone and reinstate it thanks to a popular campaign? Look, potentially, because there's been a surprising amount of emotion for what I just thought was a news bulletin. I went on ABC Adelaide Radio the evening after the announcement and somebody called up and could actually barely speak. She was crying so much about the 7.45am bulletin being cut. And I I almost had to suppress laughter because that would have been a terrible look for me, but I couldn't believe that someone was not just angry, but 
genuinely emotional and, and almost unable to speak. So in a way, maybe, but it was also part of a wider signal from the MD, David Anderson, about the move away from traditional broadcast mediums. There was a lot in there about audio hubs, about audio, about giving people audio on demand when and where they want it. And that was used as part of the justification for shifting away from the 7.45am bulletin because they want to put audio resources into things that are available cross-platform, on-demand, streaming. And they, they said that whilst they're not sort of shutting TV and shutting radio, there were lots and lots of signals that over the next five years they're going to start to make moves away from that sort of traditional broadcast. Hannah. There was actually some really interesting commentary from some ABC journos that were saying that the loss of the 745 bulletin is going to be a big issue just because it's the one that everybody wants to file to and therefore the content on it is far better than the content elsewhere and the content on it is kind of reporters choosing their best angles. And I've actually seen some pushback from that, especially from other people at the ABC saying, well, maybe this is a chance for us to change that. And this is a chance for us to rally against having these kind of flagship programs and presuming that people will just tune in to hear those news headlines and won't be listening for the rest of the day. So I think there is opportunity in the cut of the 745 bulletin, whether it does, you know, maybe not if it does return, but I think there is opportunity there to make it a more well-rounded service and to give people more opportunity to be able to tune in whenever they want, as opposed to just hitting those bulletins. But I think it's hard when you've trained people to respond to that. Like it's hard when you've trained listeners to say, okay, you can tune in at this time and this is what you'll be offered to then turn around and take it away from them because you can't just expect people to change their behavior that quickly. Well, Viv, just one final point on the ABC. Um, David Anderson, obviously, as you've, you've mentioned, fronted uh, the, the announcement. Um, up to now, Ita Buttrows, the chair of the ABC, has been quite vocal. She's been missing this week, hasn't she? I've, I've not seen her on screen talking about this at all. Yeah, this has very much been uh, put forward as David Anderson's plan to deal with the budget cuts and, and the hole that they're facing as a result. It was David Anderson that delivered the news to staff. It was him whose quotes were all throughout the five-year plan and at the very, very bottom of the press release, there was one line from Ita basically sort of saying she endorses it and it's a good plan and that's it. So surprisingly quiet from Ita and uh, perhaps it's because they don't want this to look like it's anything to do with her. There have been accusations about, you know, her allegiances and, and whether or not she's the right fit for that role. So maybe they wanted to make it about the ABC and the MD not about the board and not about the chair. Well, next we stay on the topic of the ABC as we're joined by Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland. I'm joined now on the Mumbrella cast by the Shadow Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, look, it's been another big and sad week in media. It must be quite an interesting portfolio to be looking at at the moment. But let's start with the most recent and perhaps most pressing news, which is the announcements out of the ABC this week that 
250 jobs are on the chopping block and we're losing various news and content services. How do you, as Shadow Communications Minister, feel about that news? Well, it's the complete opposite of what Australia needs, what the sector needs, and also what our economy needs looking long-term at the importance of the communications portfolio. I mean, at a time when we should be doing everything we can as a country to promote jobs, and bear in mind, you just see the statistics day after day of companies that are laying off people, Qantas laying off 6,000 people today. Uh, And uh, you look at uh, the media sector, which has been left exposed by a triple whammy of uh, COVID, also the rise of the digital platforms in terms of advertising revenue bleeds, um, but also just the lack of a coherent long-term plan um, for the sector for many years. Um, It really is uh, devastating. Uh, And let's remember this is not something that arose overnight. Um, Scott Morrison was actually the treasurer when this $84 million of cuts was instigated. And the ABC was saying since that budget day, uh, we don't have any fat left to cut. This is going to cut into content. It's going to cut into jobs. So what they said at the time has now come to fruition. So in some ways, um, it is not a surprise, um, but I still believe that uh, the ABC is important to so many Australians. It is uh, valued, is a trusted broadcaster, and at a time when you know, trust in politicians and institutions is at, at an all-time low, when we've had uh, misinformation as we've seen through COVID, uh, when we have uh, hundreds of news titles, hundreds of uh, newsrooms in that as well, um, closing, especially in regional areas, Um, over the past decade or so. It's the complete opposite of what we need. So it will mean um, long-term detrimental changes uh, for all Australians who are consumers of our public broadcaster. And what about the debate that the government is versus isn't to blame? So there's one argument that says, you know, the ABC is inefficient and poorly run, so the blame for these cuts lies at the feet of ABC management versus those who say it's a government that's at war with our national broadcaster and wants to keep cutting it. Well, I think this is not going to be bought by anyone, quite frankly. Uh, This is uh, the kind of line from a government who doesn't want to take responsibility. but it is, uh, it's also the government that instigated these cuts and promised when they, uh, on election eve, basically, that there would be no cuts to the ABC. So a clear breach of a promise. Um, the throwing up your hands, nothing to see here, not my problem, uh, I think is quite cowardly. Um, this is a government that uh, has uh, never uh, properly recognised the importance of the ABC. If they did, uh, they would be leveraging off our one of our great national assets, um, not cutting it. Look at the long-term implications that these cuts will have right across the board. We're talking now about um, the rise of the influence of um, uh, China as a state, for example. The ABC um, has been forced to close its um, shortwave service because of budget cuts. Um, ABC used to have a, a far greater role in the Pacific and our immediate region um, there's a vacuum there. 
uh, Australia has left a vacuum when it comes to uh, communications um, in the Pacific. That vacuum will be filled um, by a new player. Um, when you think about uh, all of uh, the regional areas we have at the moment that are essentially news deserts, there is no local news gathering. And it's not just coming from me. The ACCC has said that the ABC is not adequately compensated uh, to make up for all those closures um, that I mentioned. Uh, so, again, this is uh, the complete opposite um, of what Australia needs at this time. I mean, government should be creating jobs, um, not putting more people on um, Centrelink queues um, when we're in the middle of a recession. So what is Labor's position on the ABC? If you were to get into power and be the communications minister, how would you fund or resource or change the situation uh, compared to now? Well, our view has been very clear and it's been twofold. Um, firstly, um, we should be investing in the ABC, not cutting it. We went to the last election on a platform to restore um, that $84 million in cuts. Um, of course, we were unsuccessful at that election, so the impact of those cuts uh, are being felt now. But on that second point that I mentioned earlier, we should be leveraging much more off our great national assets. Um, the ABC is one of them. Australia Post, a great uh, logistics uh, company, technology, um, even in banking services, we should be leveraging off these great national assets. Um, and that is not happening under this government. Beyond the ABC, how do you feel about the general state of media in this country at the moment? Throughout the pandemic, we've seen the closure of so many publications and the loss of so many journalists and media jobs. How does that make you feel as Shadow Communications Minister as your industry sort of buckles around itself? Well, there would have been a time when you would have seen the changes that are happening and, uh, and this was a point that would have been reached some years ago where Australia could have been on the cusp of doing uh, something uh, very innovative in the media space. Um, you know, we're a market that uh, values local content uh, Australians want to see and hear Australian stories. Um, but as it is, uh, we've got that triple whammy that I talked about um, and the lack of a coherent policy over the last seven years um, that has left the sector terribly exposed. So instead of being um, excited and optimistic about the future, the question is one of survival, um, what is left to survive. Uh, I recently did uh, a virtual meeting with uh, rural operators, but also uh, consumers of news. And uh, to a T, uh, the key issue that arose was people do value uh, still having these small local publications. Uh, there is a market um, there, but also the notion that the internet means that it obviates the requirements for all other forms of media, that is simply not true. Uh, because in so many places in regional Australia, uh, the ability to uh, access news um, uh, via the internet is not as prevalent as it is in uh, metropolitan areas. Um, but the problem we have is the lack of a plan. Um, we need to see um, some modelling for what the future looks like. And again, this would have been an exciting uh, time to have been uh, looking forward and looking at these changes uh, you know, even in uh, 2016, 
um, when the government uh, introduced its media ownership changes. The key thing I pointed out at the time was we had not had a proper holistic review of the sector since around 2000. Uh, and within that time, I think in that report, uh, the word the internet might have appeared you know, once or twice even. Um, but the rise of the digital platforms, the impact that it's had uh, not only financially but also on the craft of journalism has been profound. Uh, and uh, we've had the you know, belated uh, inquiries set up by the government into uh, the digital platforms um, which again confirms many things that we already know, that market power is held by the platforms, uh, that the ad tech market is opaque, uh, that we need to have more investigations um, in this area to find out where the source of market failure is and how it might be addressed. And now we are on the, uh, the path of pursuing a mandatory code to properly compensate publishers for um, digital platforms utilising um, their content. And the year is 2020. These platforms did not arise overnight. Uh, and uh, the impact of that is being felt you know, right through from the big corporations right down uh, to these small regional operations. Um, so it is one in which uh, it, is, it is difficult to see a pathway through um, but that's not to say that there hasn't already been significant analysis on some options. Uh, public interest journalism is uh, should be uh, encouraged um, by governments. Um, you know, the fourth estate has never been more important at a time when there is so much uh, misinformation, uh, at a time when you know, our parliament is not sitting as regularly as it would and governments are making enormous decisions uh, in the face of significant uh, whole of economy cha challenges, and they need to be held to account. Um, the fourth estate has never been more important as a pillar of our uh, democracy. So uh, I'm not a one of these people. I've seen theses elsewhere, one of these people that throws up their hands and says uh, journalism is dead. Uh, quite to the contrary, you've got significant individuals, everyone from Alan Fells to uh, philanthropic institutions, uh, who have highlighted that previous reports have pointed out that there are options governments can take, everything from having tax breaks for subscription services uh, to uh, direct funding models. I mean, the other option is to do nothing. And if we do nothing, we simply stay on the trajectory of our media being under more and more pressure uh, to the point where those news deserts will not only be in regional areas but others as well. And, you know, I speak as someone from the northwest of Sydney. I have seen all of my local community titles close. Um, the only real source of news now is online, and by and large, they are in neighbourhood Facebook groups. Uh, again, I was talking about the online meeting that I had with uh, a number of uh, regional people, and this topic came up. And almost again to a T, people commented that, well, you know, those groups, that's not news. You know, that's not journalism that's being um, passed on there. It might be opinion. Uh, it might be uh, local happenings, uh, sort of observations in real time. But the craft of journalism is not something that's been promoted um, through those social media pages. So speaking of that sort of destruction of local news and so many newsrooms and journalists being without work and combine that with the proposed 
hike in university fees for these types of degrees, would you still recommend to young Australians that they go and get educated in in media and, and try and enter this space? That's a really interesting question because, firstly, I think we need um, to have more people in this space. Um, I don't think that uh, we should give up as a nation on uh, promoting the fourth estate to be critical of ourselves, um, especially politicians. Um, I think that that is part of our job. Um, If we wanted to have no voices of dissent or commentary or analysis, then that's the approach um, that we would take. Um, I temper that, though, with, you know, you've got to ask yourself um, what sort of jobs will be available in the future. You know, I'm a great believer in um, innovation in the ICT space, though. And, uh, you know, how many, when I was growing up, there was no such thing, obviously, as as podcasts. There was none of the technology um, that we have now. So in that sense, I do remain optimistic that um, not only markets, but people who are passionate about um, the craft of journalism will find a way um, to make it work. In hindsight, I think one of the uh, problems we might have had was, you know, as uh, digitisation came in, uh, there was a common belief, and I was working in a law firm at the time um, and looking at business models in these areas, the, the buzzwords were all about um, subscriptions, that people would pay to read um, certain uh, journalists. Um, so I think a lot of, you know, just about every egg was put into that basket that people would take subscriptions. And, of course, that was uh, put off the rails by the rise of the digital platforms, but Um, I think for various other reasons, yes, we do pay to have subscriptions, but do we pay to view individual um, uh, pieces by individual journalists? Certainly not as much as I think was anticipated in the early 2000s. And, you know, I'll end on this point of of the discussion is that, um, as I said, I do remain optimistic that new business models will be found. Um, I think that there will be a hunger for for readers to have uh, quality consumption um, uh, people still are willing to pay to consume. Um, we still have people who are willing to buy books, for example, uh, and, again, in different formats, whether they be in electronic versions or different devices. So I think as long as um, you know, we remain humans in a vibrant democracy, we should always uh, be encouraging that critical analysis and uh, journalism is an essential part of that. And speaking of our ability to be critical or self-reflective, one of the things that is often said about Australia's media is that it's simply not diverse enough and doesn't reflect the cultural and ethnic and all sorts of diversity that Australia has to offer. Is there anything that the government should or could be doing to balance that up a little bit? I think partly the issue here, and I represent um, an extremely diverse part of the world, uh, is our local community um, ethnic media is often left out of these conversations. Uh, I mean, there is, um, as I know it, um, one Maltese publication left. Uh, There is one Maltese uh, radio slot um, on SBS now. And part of that is because you know, the Maltese um, as a, uh, a community group in the 
their phase of migration came um, quite early uh, in Australia's migration history. Um, a lot of people are now you know, fourth, fifth generation um, Maltese who would still be um, speaking uh, the language. But my view is when we think about uh, uh, diversity, we should think about diversity not only in terms of ethnicity but also in terms of age, capacity to pay and consume. Uh, so for people who uh, by and large are older or are younger and want to keep up their language, um, you know, it's, it shouldn't simply be a matter of oh, all you need to do is go on the internet and um, get some information, you know, get your, your language uh, dose from Malta. Um, we have there's one Maltese publication left, um, one Maltese um, uh, radio uh, slot left, uh, and they uh, regularly raise with me that they are often overlooked in these discussions. Um, the various uh, subcontinent publications that are out there that are giving news and views um, not only on uh, overseas developments, but these are for uh, Australians. These are for Australian consumers. And I must say, I it's like SBS. People used to think um, SBS was uh, a, a broadcaster uh, for people of ethnic backgrounds. One of the main uh, reasons for SBS was to educate everyone, uh, not necessarily people of ethnic backgrounds, but so we could all understand what sort of society we live in. I learned something all the time by flicking through um, ethnic community papers. And again, the advertising model that they have uh, is pretty much their sole source of revenue. And during periods like this when business has been down, some of them have been quite innovative. They've gone online, they've produced um, online uh, podcasts and different ways to be able to keep their audiences. Um, but I do think that that is a sector that has been um, overlooked um, over the years. And I think if it was paid um, more attention, uh, and you know, I, I bear in mind that we can't even get our public broadcaster properly funded under this government, um, if they were paid more attention, I think we would see some very significant and positive results for the community. Now, Michelle, you mentioned before about this inquiry into the digital platforms, uh, which is looking at payment models for reimbursing publishers now for the use of their content. And the ACCC is currently looking into the various ways in which this could be executed. When a lot of people talk about this inquiry and the fact that we're now going down the path of perhaps forcing these digital giants to pay, a lot of people say that it's a world first, what we're doing here in Australia. So do you think uh, the Communications Minister, Paul Fletcher, and the government deserve praise for starting this process or do you think they were too slow to begin? Well, I think they were. It, this came far too slow um, and the reason this was instigated was as a result of a deal with um, Nick Xenophon and others to get their uh, media ownership changes through in um, 2017. But I also believe that uh, Australia has an enormous role to play, which is why we need to get this right. Um, this is in the hands of Rod Sims, and I think that it is appropriate that is being uh, undertaken by our uh, competition regulator. Um, and look, we I, I look forward to seeing the draft mandatory code once it's released for public consultation. Um, it is uh, very significant that Australia has um, taken, uh, you know, what I do think is a is a leadership role on this. Um, on the other hand, this is one of those 
areas where it will require global um, cooperation. And I'm fortunate to, along with some of my other colleagues, have been um, briefed uh, a few times by uh, Rod Sims on this. And the more I think about it, the more I think that this is a matter that needs to be addressed on a global scale. Now, I'm not just saying that in an esoteric sense, because we have seen where uh, there have been global issues that go into the digital space. Um, For example, intellectual property. Um, A lot of uh, intellectual property um, laws and problems were streamlined uh, as a result of um, international collaboration. So I do think that this will take um, quite a lot of collaboration. Um, I think that uh, it is a step in the right direction and I fully support um, uh, the uh, direction that the ACCC is taking. But I think we need to be aware um, that uh, putting the money in the the pockets of the news publishers, um, we don't have a a date um, for that yet. Uh, We see developments that are happening uh, around the world in a couple of jurisdictions uh, in the EU, for example, where there have been court cases on new snippets. But again, whilst these are obviously interesting and uh, we should observe those and take those into account in Australia's deliberations, uh, it remains to be seen when the date will come, when that money will flow. And in the interim, um, what happens to all these other publications uh, who whose um, uh, business models have been uh, irreparably uh, disrupted um, as a result of these platforms. I do think one important, you know, we we need to have a sense of urgency about this in Australia. Um, I think that, you know, Rod Sims has brought um, a certain stature to this that wasn't um, there previously. Um, But I think when it comes down to it, it's important to understand that people used to think content is content and we shouldn't bother about, you know, how it is carried. People will view what they want to, want to view. I want to challenge that because not all content was created equal. You know, public interest journalism isn't cat videos, you know, as exciting as cat videos um, may be. It requires investment, um, resources, intellectual rigour. Um, and, and back to what I said about the fourth estate being a, a pillar of our um, democracy. Um, you know, the key point I want to make here is that you know, we had this crisis situation in the media well before COVID. Um, we've been left exposed um, by the lack of a um, long-term coherent plan. Um, and you know, unfortunately, this government doesn't have a good record of um, delivery when it comes to getting things done. Um, you know, just as an aside, you know, they announced a spectrum reform process um, when Malcolm Turnbull was the Minister for Communications, and we haven't seen anything after six years. Um, Content reform continues to be this ongoing conversation after around three years. And in regional media, um, the sector is crying out for a new model, but we're yet to see a plan from the government. Um, So I do think that there is, um, there is, uh, I'm optimistic um, that there will be uh, a resolution in this area and that Australia will be seen um, as a leader thanks to um, uh, the ACCC. Um, But I also think that uh, it is going to require a lot of uh, international cooperation um, in this area because let's remember these platforms are global. Um, They have pockets uh, deeper than just about any um, organisation and certainly any uh, media organisation in Australia. So... uh, 
they will be watching this very closely as well um, and undertaking their own um, due diligence on what they can do in response. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question in terms of whether Australia is big enough to actually force companies this big to pay, you know, if they don't want to and they can find a way around it, I presume they'll do everything they can to find a way around it. Well, you'd ex- you'd expect that. And also, again, to give credit to Rod Sims, he's not blind to this, you know, without um, giving away um, confidence, you know, he, he is well aware of uh, you know, Australia's, you know, Australia has a very concentrated media market, relatively small also, and by global standards, um, uh, markets and he's um, well aware of those limitations um, but also you know, the the option is do nothing uh, the option is do nothing or wait for the rest of the world um, so I certainly think uh, I, I would prefer to be proactive um, in this area um, which Australia is doing. And what about the focus on all those unemployed entertainment and arts workers who, for various reasons, haven't been eligible for the JobKeeper stimulus program? What's your stance on on that and whether or not they should have been included? Well, Labor's made a a very strong case for um, why certain excluded parties um, should actually uh, be brought into this uh, level of assistance. Uh, and, I mean, if we want to be, uh, again, telling Australian stories, producing Australian stories, um, that does require us to support the sector. So it, it has been um, extremely disappointing to date um, that this is uh, a cohort that has been um, left behind. Uh, you know, and, again, just taking representations from my own constituents, uh, you know, people who are entertainers, um, many people who... and. It's it's easy, I think, sometimes to forget that when we're talking about entertainers, we're not only talking about um, people whose you know, names might be up in lights. There are people who uh, you know, their living is performing on cruise ships, uh, for example, or in large venues, uh, not necessarily as performers but as um, support people. Um, it really is one of those networked industries where uh, the sector being um, not only disruptive disrupted but essentially shut down, um, impacts on everyone from uh, logistics to caterers um, right across um, the spectrum. Um, so you know, there are very sound economic reasons um, for supporting um, these people and it's been uh, an argument that our uh, spokesperson, Tony Burke, um, has repeatedly made. So as Shadow Communications Minister and a member of parliament, which means you're under a lot of scrutiny and there's a lot written about what you guys do every day. Is it possible for you to enjoy and consume media for entertainment purposes without looking at it as shadow communications minister? Oh, all the time. Um, I um, regularly uh, watch uh, linear TV, in particular sport and sport commentary, for example. Here I'm letting giving you a bit of an insight I very much enjoy um, sport commentary shows, um, not because I'm an avid sports person um, at all, but I just find listening to the discussion of people who somehow understand every player who is either on that field or in the team, uh, I find that fascinating that people can know so many statistics. I'll even often have uh, American sport in the background. I do not understand any of it. 
Um, but just listening to people's passion, uh, the detail, for me, I actually find that it's it's almost meditative <laughs> for me to uh, listen to people who enjoy something that um, I don't understand and I don't have the skill um, to understand. Um, but in terms of you know, uh, news media as well, you know, I, I have some colleagues who refuse to read media um, full stop and they've, they've had that view for quite a while. I tend to take the Bob Carr view here that um, the, the media, an open media um, that is critical of you is the price that we pay for living in a democracy and um, I'm happy to pay that price. Um, I do find as uh, my children, uh, their viewing habits change um, and uh, also the, the, the mediums on uh, the media on which they uh, watch them. Uh, Louis, for example, um, you know, I enjoy the Australianness of that as well. Um, and I can often see my own character and personality coming out um, in uh, especially the mum. Uh, but, <laughs> but also it does make me feel a bit inadequate because here are two parents who always make time for their kids. Like they're busy, but they always make time for their kids. So in one sense, I find it so delightful. On the other sense, I find it to be a bar. It has set a standard so high um, for the rest of us. You know, Louie and Chili have a lot to answer for in my book <laughs> when it comes to that. Yes, feel free to keep entertaining us all, but you've set a really high bar. Well, on that note, Michelle Rowland, Shadow Communications Minister, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Next, a couple of significant moves in media agencies. What's going on in the world of media agencies this week? Brit, big strategy hires at Cara and at Hearts and Science. Um, so let's start with Hearts and Science because they bought an agency too. They did buy an agency. They bought Max and Partners, which was a boutique agency based in Melbourne, fronted by Jared Max. So he's kind of a, a figure in the industry and had a relationship with Hearts and Science. So it, it was very much sold as the natural next move for Max and Partners to be tapped into kind of a small agency, I suppose, but one that's growing within a bigger holding group, but then also for Hearts and Science to grow as Omnicom's kind of newest and youngest offering as well. Well, yeah, it's worth spelling out, isn't it? I suppose if we were to um, give 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 them rankings, which is a bit unfair, I guess we'd think of as OMD as the first string agency for Omnicom, certainly the biggest. PhD is the second, but coming up quite fast and it's only been in the last what two years or so that hearts and science came through in australia yeah so hearts and science was launched in 2018 i believe and they kind of started in sydney and melbourne expanded to perth expanded to new zealand so there's definitely been growth there but still in the wider scheme of omnicom it's still you know early stages and very small in comparison with the omds and phds of the world well, I quite like the sort of the the brand position as well, or or just the DNA of that agency, which is, you know, as the name suggests, hearts and science. You've got the sort of creative thinking side, but also the kind of the hard data side of things, which seems like quite a strong market position, something that clients would like. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in the strategy stories that we've had across our desk in the past week or so, 
that's been something that's been kind of, you know, hammed up by both Hearts and Science and by CARA really in, in their strategy hires as well. So I think at the moment especially, you know, whatever you can offer clients that's a point of difference is exactly that, a point of difference and, and a, an advantage. So, you know, I think with um, with Hearts and Science, you know, they also appointed Paul Payne as Chief Strategy Officer, which is a big hire for them. And I do think we're kind of in this next phase for them. They've had a couple of years to kind of get their feet under the desk, so to speak. And now it's about really proving to clients that they can rival, you know, their big sisters, OMD and PhD. And it's a return home for Paul Payne as well, because he was a sort of store at OMD. Mm-hmm. And I think very well thought of within the Omnicom family. So I, I guess they missed him while he was away. Yeah, he was also managing director at PhD across APAC for a while. So yeah, he went away and had his strategy and creative consultancy think truck for a while. Interestingly, he was working with OMG at that consultancy. He was also working with CARA, um, where he was head of strategy in the early 2000s as well. So he's going to kind of oversee the strategy offering nationally and support new business. Well, let's talk a bit about Caro. As you say, they also made a big hire. One of the first, I, I guess, most significant ones since um, Sue Squalachi took the helm. Yeah, so I initially heard that Linda Fagerland had moved there as Chief Strategy Officer and kind of chased it on that basis and then was told, you know, actually it's part of a bigger move, there's more hires and, you know, it's a bigger story than just Linda. So she's coming across from Spark Foundry where she used to work with Sue Squalachi, who was CEO there before she stepped across to Cara in September. Gosh, September feels like a long way away. I was like, is that right? It is right. Um, and she's going to be kind of leading this new look strategy team, I suppose. So their national head of strategy, Danny Wright, has been promoted to add this comms planning capacity to her title. And I think that was what the the thread was, is that they're suddenly really interested in this planning element. They've got this, you know, group of force planning specialists joining as well to support the team. And when I chatted to Sue Squalachi about this move and about, you know, why strategy, why now, why in the middle of COVID-19, it was very much like we need this really strong offering for clients more than ever. Clients are looking for this more than ever. We've had some time during COVID to really think about our brand and our product because we've had to. And so, you know, if we can make this the most attractive offering it can be, that puts us in a really good position, particularly off the back of the last couple of years that Cara's had. Well, Viv, let me bring you in for the wider um, uh, sort of uh, picture of Dentsu, the holding company, um, which, which, which owns Cara amongst other agencies. Just, just, just as Britt was sort of referring back to September, I was thinking back to late November or early December when we were in Tasmania doing the Mumbrella. I can't remember if it was the Mumbrella Marketing Retreat or the Mumbrella Media Retreat when the news came through that Henry Tager was leaving as that group boss. And in the weeks that followed, we sort of realised that there were some quite wide issues at Dentsu. It seems like such a long time ago, yet I guess all of those issues are still there. 
It was really shocking just then when Britt said that Sue Squalacci had started in September because I realised the same thing, Tim, that when we were on that bus in Tasmania, it, it was indeed on the 26th of November 2019, so seven months ago, but it actually feels like that involved different humans on a different timeline. It feels so long ago. So Henry Tager was well, left then and it was an interesting signal from the global Dentsu Aegis network when it sort of became clear that their business strategy was a little bit different and perhaps wasn't aligned with what Henry Tager wanted to do. And there were lots of strange phrases in the press release that just sort of indicated that, that things weren't weren't quite right and, and they said, you know, that it was the the right decision. It's very odd to have somebody leave and say, you know, you can find a thinly veiled way of saying that, but to flat out say this is the right decision, you know, if, if when I leave you put out a press release saying this is the right decision, I think I'd be quite upset. Uh, so now Dentsu Aegis Network, it's gone quite quiet like a lot of agency groups and, and media owners because, you know, that they've got so many problems and, and budget holes to deal with. But we certainly haven't heard a lot from the group since Henry left. And I think they're probably just trying to work out what to do next and, and, and how to rebuild because you have to keep in mind, Henry hired a lot of these people. He hired Sue Squalachi as CEO of CARA. They're, they're good friends. They've worked a lot together. They really respect each other. She was very excited to work with Henry and now Henry's gone. So I think there's probably quite a bit of work to do internally and externally on the reputation of the group and on the strategy of the group moving forward when it feels like global head office doesn't see Australia as a priority. And I guess it's also admirable self-confidence on your part that um, were you ever to depart, it would be worthy of a press release. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I salute your self-belief. Well, look, Tim, I, I run the website, so I'd just write the press release and put it up myself. <laughs> Next, Zoe updates us on the week in Adland. You only have until midnight on Tuesday to submit your entries for the Mumbrella Awards if you want to avoid the late entry fee. The Mumbrella Awards are all about crowning the industry's most effective leaders, celebrating top marketing teams, recognising leading agencies and brands, and awarding bravery, insight and innovation. If your work has been a cut above the rest for the past 15 months, it's time to get involved. Final entries accepted until July 7th. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella awards to get started right away. To the weekend Adland then, Zoe. Shall we start with Dry July? Yes, so Dry July has kicked off its annual marketing campaign for its annual fundraiser for cancer patients, which traditionally asks people to abstain from drinking alcohol for the month of July. This year it's a bit different though because in light of everyone being at home due to COVID-19, they've sort of mixed it up a bit and giving people the option of doing a fortnight dry July or a three-week dry July uh, with the hope of getting more people involved in the campaign and yeah, just giving people more of that flexibility. And Adam Spencer is the uh, person who's voicing it. Well, so far, 2020's been a challenge. 
So this year, we've introduced some new options for dry July. We're calling it dry-ish July. Yes, Adam Spencer was the voice of the TVC that was created by Clemenger BBDO Sydney. And I think it's quite a cute little spot. It's an animated spot, which, you know, we're seeing a bit more of now that production's changed. And it's got some characters representing the different time lengths. So there's a Frank, a Wendell and a Di representing the different time periods that people can take off drinking alcohol for. So this is um, Fortnite Frank, three-week Wendell and fully dry dye. So there is a bit of a stretch to get to the uh, to get to the people. Um, I suppose one of the things I find myself thinking about dry July, and I'm not sure you'll know the answer, is, uh, as you sort of put it at the start, obviously it's asking people to get involved uh, in raising funds for cancer research. Is that really a bit of a Trojan horse, though? Because surely the real behaviour change campaign, the real nature of the Dry July Foundation is what they really want to do is stop Australians from drinking so much and making themselves unhealthy and killing themselves through alcohol dependency. Well, yeah, it is interesting to me that they are sort of giving this option to do a fortnight or three weeks, considering research from the... Alcohol and Drug Foundation found that 29% of parents had increased their alcohol intake during lockdown. So one would think that in isolation, you would want people to take the full month away from alcohol as opposed to a shorter period of time. Like you would think that with more social interaction, after work drinks, different meetings, that sort of thing, that's when like being like, oh, it's only two weeks would seem a bit more appealing to people, whereas in lockdown it's kind of, I don't know how well it fits. Well, let's um, move on to our next topic, another Sydney agency, DDB Sydney. Um, They've just come on board with uh, LinkedIn and uh, very much trying to sell in the message that uh, if you lose your job then uh, in these uh, COVID-challenged times, LinkedIn can help you find the next one. Yes, so LinkedIn uh, recently appointed DDB Sydney to its creative account. Uh, My understanding is that it happened earlier this year and there was no pitch process involved. This campaign is the third instalment of its hashtag in it together campaign, but the first from DDB Sydney. The ad does sort of tell the story of how you can leverage your LinkedIn network to find work, find support if you have lost your job due to COVID-19. But I've got to say I'm a little tiny bit sceptical because at this rate so many people have lost their jobs and a large part of that is a redundancy, which means that you can't hire someone into that directly the same job. So how many jobs out there are there for people to find through LinkedIn who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19. And I suppose the other question as well is I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how LinkedIn now seeks to position itself, you know, because this, this feels like it straddles a consumer marketing campaign and a, almost a business or B2B marketing campaign. So, you know, it's interesting they go for a mainstream agency like DDB for this sort of brand campaign for what always felt like a B2B product. 
I mean, they have previously worked with McCann and that's another, you know, big legacy agency. So I don't know how much of a huge change that is in terms of like consumer versus B2B agency, but in terms of who they are marketing to, maybe this sort of two-in-one campaign is kind of a smart way to go for them as marketing budgets continue to shrink. And then uh, lastly, uh, for talking about the week in Adland, um, interesting new approach to promoting uh, the latest instalment or the second instalment of The Last of Us uh, PlayStation 4 game um, with um, an approach that goes beyond just traditional advertising. At the centre of this campaign is a video of Tash Sultana, the Australian musician, uh, covering... The track Through the Valley, which was used in the reveal video of The Last of Us Part 2 back in 2016. It was then performed by the game's lead character, Ellie. And at the time, it gained like viral attention and, you know, really built up the hype for this game that's been, you know, coming for the last four years. So, for those of us who aren't gamers, what is the game? Well, I am not a gamer myself, but I can give this a crack. Um, It is a PlayStation 4 game. It's done in a third-person perspective, and I believe the storyline is kind of a zombie apocalypse survivor narrative. And one of the interesting things f- uh, about this for me is it's not a creative agency as such which has done this work. It's it's Poem, which I think of as a PR agency. Yes. So traditionally, Poem would have fallen into a communications PR agency kind of category. But recently, I've noticed in communications coming through from them, they've been describing themselves as an earned creative agency, which I suppose is a creative campaign that's sort of based on an earned media idea. Uh, They had a campaign a couple of weeks ago for hearing health brand Audica, which starred Kate Sobrano. So they are putting out more kind of creative work, leaning more into that area of things. But it's an interesting development for the agency and I'm looking forward to seeing like what projects they take on in the next couple of months to see how it develops. And also on the roster and in the story you covered was the media agency, which is Mediacom. And I just want to share the quote that was in the press release um, because considering we're in the communications industry, which is about clarity of communications, I'd, I'd like to know what people make of this. So this is this is cited to a member of the Mediacom team and I'm I'm not going to say a name here because that's not particularly fair because I'm pretty sure these words didn't actually come from her lips. But according to the press release, this person from Mediacom said, one of the key triggers that influence our core audience in their decision journey is additional footage of new software titles. The Tash Sultana video is a great way for us to cater to this need, creating an extra layer of engagement in our video approach. 
not only will this drive cut through in market, but also create another proof point to drive our players through the funnel. Look, I, I mean, honestly, I, 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 because I write about marketing, I do understand all of those points, but none of it is necessary. Why does someone allow their name to be put beside that sort of marketing drivel that no one would actually, in reality, say aloud to a colleague or a friend with a straight face? Look, I can't hate on it because that is the level of articulation I would have aspired to at university. But for a publication but that is not it, only gets- is articulation another proof point to drive our players through the funnel? You know, just because you use lots of long and clever words and some marketing jargon, that's not real articulation, surely. Surely good communications is saying it as simply as possible. We're hoping to sell more stuff. Well, I've been at university far more recently than you, Tim, so I can <laughs> say, like, it's pretty effective in my brain. But well, um, More to the point, you've been to university full stop. Oh, well. Maybe we this is it. Maybe it's all above my head. That's probably the issue, isn't it? You, you, you graduates are working at a different level to me. I mean, you're the one that said you've been writing about marketing for a long time and understood everything she was saying, whereas maybe some graduates who are reading Mumbrella for the first time won't. Next, is TikTok about to come of age as a marketing tool? So we seem to have got to the stage of the hype cycle when the first specialist TikTok agency launches in Australia. Uh, Zoe, you covered Tick My Day, the launch of that new agency uh, this week. Um, What do marketers need to know about TikTok? So TikTok is uh, the new hot thing in social media. It's a short form video based social media platform, which is sort of grounded in the sampling of audio clips. There's a couple of different ways that marketers can go about advertising on TikTok. The first is just a branded ad, like we're all familiar with across different social media platforms that appears on the For You page, which uh, is sort of an explore page for TikTok users that serves you content based on the data they gather and the algorithm that is formed. Um, The second way brands can go about it is through the use of influencers. So engaging popular TikTok creators to make branded content. Um, Another way that we've seen quite recently actually is the introduction of challenges. So part of what is big on TikTok is sort of dance challenges and sort of questionable activity challenges i'm sort of brought back to the cinnamon challenge of many years ago um so oh, not the cinnamon ago- challenge yeah. no i'm sorry i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> um it's when you had to film yourself eating like a whole tablespoon of cinnamon which is actually really dangerous for your health and no one ever really managed to achieve it most people choked it was bad anyway <laughs> So recently we've seen Optus launch a dance challenge on TikTok to sort of, you know, celebrate people being able to reconnect with one another. And 
I'm pretty sure back around Halloween time, uh, Fanta in Australia introduced like an apple bobbing challenge on, on TikTok as well. The last option that brands would have is um, having your own channel on TikTok. So the Washington Post in the US has its own TikTok channel that's created by uh, a member of their social media and video content team. And that's used to sort of cover, you know, current affairs, but also promote the Washington Post to Generation Z. So, and this is unfair to, but I'm going to ask the whole team. Um, I, I, I moderated a kind of a, oh, again, it feels like a million years ago, Christmas in July event um, uh, in a pub. And one of the speakers was Mark Ritson. And he was so skeptical and negative about TikTok as a marketing platform. Um, you know, he was he was absolutely convinced it was just a fad. Um, in a moment, I'm going to get Zoe to come back. She's probably the most qualified and spent the most time with it. But um, where where do we see TikTok in the cycle right now, Vivian? Even if it is a fad, I don't think that precludes it from being important at the moment. You know, nobody expected Facebook to become as big and prevalent and long-lasting as it has. Everybody, when I got Facebook more than 10 years ago, thought it would be over by now, whereas it's evolved by now and is now arguably one of the world's most evil and controlling organisations. You know, we didn't know that would happen. So it could disappear, sure, but does that mean that the people that you reached during this time were a waste of time? No. Could it perhaps evolve and last even longer and become something that is around for a long time? Yes. So, and I think that does kind of reek of a, a middle-aged dude um, saying, what is this nonsense that the kids are doing? You know, I think the, the youths on TikTok would give no shits what Professor Mark Ritson thinks of their activities. And of course, of course, he's dismissive of it. And that's exactly why they go to these new platforms, because they want to get away from that rhetoric. They want to get away from that worldview and they want to do their own thing. So, I mean, it just feeds into the exact narrative that this generation has about the older generations by being so dismissive of them. Now, Zoe is dying to get in, but I am going <laughs> to let Hannah come in first before Zoe gives her verdict. I was just going to say, I think a really obvious comparison to make here is Snapchat, which went through the exact same thing. Everybody was like, Snapchat doesn't exist. Snapchat's not real. Then all the brands got on Snapchat. Snapchat made a lot of people a lot of money, especially its founders. Then Kylie Jenner effectively killed Snapchat in a single tweet or whatever she was, where she was like, is anybody even still on Snapchat? And then suddenly it was worth nothing to anybody. But I think the fact that we're having this conversation and the fact that a simple Google of TikTok when the other day they announced what kind of made up their algorithm, which of course everyone was desperate to know, and now there's a million think pieces on how you can cheat their algorithm and make it work for you, suggests that it's worthy of our time. So Zoe, I guess the question then is, if you're a marketer, if you're a serious marketer, are you now duty bound to understand TikTok? I think... They are because I tend to agree with Viv that it is quite an important marketing tool now to reach Generation Z. I mean, there's been a lot written about the power that Gen Z has as a consumer, not because of their wealth, but because of what they have come to expect from brands in terms of being environmentally and socially conscious. 
So in terms of starting to build that brand relationship with those consumers, I think it's incredibly important. Um, TikTok has 6 million active users in Australia. And since lockdown has begun, uh, it's seen a massive increase in downloads from Australian users. It's also seen an increase in people in older age brackets downloading it as well. And so something that comes to mind for me is that similarly to Snapchat, it's very popular with the kids, brands start to come on board, and then it gets inundated with advertisers and people of different generations and then the kids are like, no, this isn't cool anymore and they move on. So I think that is something to be conscious of. But for now, I think it's incredibly important to be marketing on TikTok. And what do you think, Brett? I mean, I don't use TikTok, but that doesn't automatically make it kind of bad or irrelevant. I think Zoe's right that it's definitely Gen Z based and I am definitely not in that bracket. I would never, ever, ever compete in a dance challenge or (laughs) any of these other things. But it's cool to watch. Like the ones I've seen that have gone big, you know, they're they're cool. I I get it. Um, But, you know, I also don't think that it's the right way to go to, yeah, like snub a platform and snub what a whole generation apparently thinks is like really cool and what they're looking at at the moment and looking at for a long time. I've I've heard that it's addictive. I mean, you've got like TikTok minor celebs living in mansions in Calabasas in the US. So they're obviously doing work very well for themselves. And I guess I'm jealous that I don't have their money, but I don't want the dance challenges. I don't want to do those to get there. So yeah, look, I'm I'm not a TikTok user, but I very much am interested in the premise. I, I rather fear that when we play this back in the years to come, we may sound embarrassingly out of touch, rather like when you hear those 20-year-old clips of people talking about the arrival of the information superhighway. Yeah. Yes, like when Zoe said multiple times, the kids. Uh, <laughs> I it's feel like one of them. <laughs> I feel like that's that's not going to age well for us. But in good news, I don't think the cool TikTok kids are listening to us, Tim. So I think we'll be okay. Next, it's all kicking off in Tellyland. Hannah, lots going on behind the scenes in television this week. Where do we start? Oh, where do we start? There's so many exciting things. Um, well, let's kick off with what was my favourite for the week, which was uh, Nine's Darren Wick. So Nine's head of news and current affairs, Darren Wick, promising that 60 Minutes is here to stay, despite a report from the Sunday Telegraph, which said that it was about to get the boot. I think this was my favorite from the week just because it's rare that we see such a kind of direct outburst from somebody. And Darren sent to staff, which was then forwarded to the media, a very long email, which kind of completely tore the story apart, referred to it as a fairy tale and said that nobody from Nine had spoken to the Sunday Telegraph and that it was all being run based on total fantasy Um, And then went on to say that 60 Minutes is doing better than ever and has some of the best journalists in the country attached to it and why would they get rid of it? Um, 
I think this is another interesting play in this hilarious back and forth we're seeing between Nine and the Sunday Telegraph. I don't know what's going on there. I wish I did. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw that um, very strange article about Hugh Marks, which then got some very nasty responses from Nine as well. So The scandal about him having a picnic in the park with somebody he works with. (laughs) I don't think this will be the end of the Nine uh, Sunday Telegraph back and forth, but I do think that we will use those comments from Darren Wick if he if 60 minutes does get cut. And do we do we think that there is an increase in hostilities more generally between News Corp and Nine as the big two gorillas these days? Yeah, I think you would only need to look at the media page of the Australian to confirm that there is an increase in hostilities. I'm not sure if it goes the other way. I can't say I've necessarily recognised that much of a slam the other way, but I think News Corp has definitely got a bit of a bee in its bonnet at the moment. Um, And now that ABC Life has been cut, it will be interesting to see if Nine gets even more of it. And uh, while we're on the subject of Nine, um, time for them to say farewell to Sam Newman. Sam Newman, the man that you had no idea was still on TV, but surprisingly he was. Um, Yeah, Britt mainly covered this one, so I'll pass it over to her. But before I do, I just want to say we seem to have this obsession in Australia with letting people, letting white men particularly, stay on TV long after they've, you know, said something racist, said something sexist, said something whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and it just shocks me that we keep letting them have this platform, really. But, yeah, Britt, what did you think of that well, one? Well, uh, I think in addition to your point, Hannah, not only do we have this weird obsession with letting white men stay on long past women would be considered to have expired, but when they then leave because they've apparently said something too racist or too sexist and the line is finally drawn, I mean, Keep in mind that Sam Newman wore blackface on national television in 1999. They're then kind of farewelled as this, like, hero. And we saw it with Alan Jones, you know. I feel like we'd finally reached a point where the consensus was Alan Jones should not be allowed to say this stuff anymore. And he was kind of shepherded towards the door or, you know, left off his own accord because of medical reasons. But when people were paying tribute to him, none of that was mentioned. And it was the same with Sam Newman. So when I went to Nine for a statement, when it was finally confirmed that they'd parted ways mutually, amicably, apparently, um, the statement I got didn't mention the comments he'd made about George Floyd on his podcast at all and instead said that he was, and I quote, a master at live television with a highly successful media career and that he had helped the footy show enormously in its ratings. And it felt very strange in the context of, you know, the comments that he'd made and the reason why he was shown the door, even if that was a mutual decision. Well, just before I bring in Vivian on this one, let me just test one of your hypotheses that it is uh, the, the white men keep coming back. Like a couple of white women I think of who have said some, some stuff. Kerry Ann Kennelly, Son- Sonia Kruger, Prue McSween. Are you sure it's not a white thing rather than a gender thing? Look, I think in terms of racism, absolutely, it's a white thing, obviously. But 
I think the point is pretty well proven that generally speaking, and that doesn't mean that no woman over 50 ever is seen on television ever and is locked up behind the scenes, but there's a very clear drop-off point for women and there's a very clear point at which women are seen to have peaked in their careers versus men. And I think it's much more difficult for women to appear on TV shows longer. And so in that sense, I think, you know, it's it's great that we see women of Prue McSween, Carrie-Anne Cannelly's age, just not of their views. <laughs> in terms of uh, Brittany's point about people sticking on television for too long after their indiscretions, I think it's interesting to note that this week uh, Ryan Phelan, who is on, was on the Daily Edition, which is a Channel 7 program, was charged by police over some domestic violence uh, accusations from his partner and he was let go by Seven immediately. I think where Seven was able to do this was Ryan was meant to be finishing up on the Friday anyway, so it's pretty easy to cut him loose on a Tuesday when he only had four more episodes to record, but that was very swift and he wasn't sort of given a second chance, wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. He was meant to finish on Friday. Now I assume there'll be no big farewell, no nostalgic packages for how fantastic he was. He was just axed immediately because Seven had the benefit of cutting that show this week anyway. Well, sticking with TV, um, Hannah, back to you. Um, Alan Jones is um, pursuing more of a career in television. Speaking of people that just won't go away, um, yeah, Alan Jones has signed an exclusive deal with uh, subscription TV channel Sky News. So he was already a host there. Um, he'll now be hosting a weeknight primetime program just called Alan Jones uh, from the coming Monday. I think it was you and I, Tim, who talked about when Jones was let go from 2GB. I think you posited the question to me that, did I believe that it was medical or was Nine just looking for a chance to get him out the door? And as soon as this press release came across our desk, Brittany messaged me immediately and said, oh, so I guess, you know, medically he can't do morning radio, but he can do television. While I do think probably this will require a little less effort from Alan Jones than his giant bulk of breakfast radio, I do think it's quite interesting that he has picked up another you know, four nights a week gig straight off the back of it. Um, but I don't think it's at all surprising that he's going to be upping his commitment to Sky News. I think probably Sky News were potentially the only ones interested. Um, and obviously they this is their entire business model. You know, they're proud supporters of Andrew Bolt, proud supporters of Paul Murray. So Alan Jones fits right in. Well, that is it for this week. But before we go, sign up to Mumbrella Pro's free seven-day trial to access hundreds of hours of exclusive video content and audio analysis. Gain access to a comprehensive industry directory with over 2,000 contacts across agencies, media companies, and brands. And be sure to check out the brand new case studies for top insights on just what goes into creating award-winning work. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro for more information that is it for this week though thank you everyone thank, thank you thanks, Tim. toodle pip